I heard a story about a wife who came to a husband. He was laying on the couch, and he came over to her lovingly, and, or she came over to him lovingly, and took off his glasses. And she said, oh, honey, I want you to know that, that even without your glasses, you are a handsome man. And he smiled. He said, you know, without my glasses, you're a very attractive woman. Ooh, yeah, don't do that at home. That's right. Yeah. Perspective is what that story tells us. Perspective. Perspective is how you see life, how you see yourself, how you see others. And I think we both know there are times when we don't see things the way they really are. You look in the mirror and it looks like you are Hercules, but you go outside and you realize you can't even lift up the tire to put it on the car. You can't lift up your kids. We see ourselves oftentimes as we want to see ourselves, not necessarily for who or where we are. It happens. It happens with us as individuals. It happens as we see one another, and it can happen with a church that we see what we want to see, not necessarily what is in the moment, what is reality. But can you imagine something with me? Can you imagine we get a letter in the mail? It's addressed to the angel of the church at Campbell Road. And inside is a letter from Jesus to us. You ever thought about that? And what, what would he say? What would we want him to say or hope he would say? If he were to talk about individuals, what would he say about you? What would he say about me? Would he find good things to praise, things to commend, things to say that you're doing this very well? You're doing this very well. Continue in this. Would he find things that we're not doing well? Things that he would say, you need to repent, you need to change and change quickly or else. Since the start of the year, the young people and the high school, two separate devotionals, have been looking at the same text, Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. We've been walking through the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. And, and these letters are some of the most powerful and captivating portions of Scripture because we get to see in a glimpse all the things happening on earth from heaven's perspective, from Christ's perspective. And it invites us, I know you've thought it before, or at least if you've not, you are now, that when you read those chapters, you wonder, what would happen if Jesus wrote us a letter? I mean, what, what would that letter say? I want today, just as, as you see on the board, to share seven observations from the seven letters. We, we, the 50 or so of us who went through it, walked through those letters, and I'd like to share with you what I observed as we walked through these letters this time and this year. If you're new to the letters, there are seven letters written by Jesus to the seven churches that were encircled in Asia. The letters followed a, a certain pattern. It, they all were addressed to the angel. And so if you notice from Revelation 2, each marker for each church says to the angel of the church. Angel doesn't mean that there's this cherub or this holy being that exists among us. Angel means a messenger. He sent the letter to the brethren, and whoever brought it to them, that is who he is communicating it to. Every church began, or every letter began with this glorious picture of Jesus. We kind of settle on the few. We call him Son of God. We call him the Lamb of God. But if we need to get some inspiration in our prayers, men, 
We want to find some inspiration, brethren, for the way that we think about Jesus. Let's go to Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, because the way that he is described is almost beyond comparison, beyond description. It's pulling right out of the first chapter, because in chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. And what goes forth is echoed in each of the letters as Jesus describes himself as this glorious, victorious, triumphant king. The letters then follow a a certain flow. To each church, certain things are mentioned. They're the things that are, gone under, that are done well, that are doing well. To each of the church, except for Laodicea, Jesus takes the time to point out the things that they are doing and, and that they're doing well. And then he takes the time to talk about the things that they're not doing well, except for Smyrna and, and for Philadelphia. He makes it clear the things that they have that, that need to be changed, that need to be turned from. And he tells them what to do. He tells them how to change, how to repent, how to correct, or to keep going forward, to stay the course, to keep being faithful. But he gives them instruction from this letter forward, this is what it is I want you to do, how you can respond. And then he ends with this amazing promise that if you would listen to these words, if, if you listen to the letter I'm writing to you and do what they say, it's not just that things here on earth are going to be great. You might make that point that some of the blessings you could say would happen then and now, but most of them are pointing to a fulfillment in the glorious place of heaven. The people of God, blessed with a grand reward. It is it, some incredible language about our home is wrapped up in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. I have seven thoughts. We're not going to do a deep word-by-word Greek study of uh, Revelation 2 and 3. Seven simple observations. And I guarantee you would say, I have a lot more than that. I probably have 70, and I bet you do. I I really bet you do. But these are seven that stood out to me. Seven observations from the seven letters that I believe could help us. Could help, and not just us. I'm not talking about whoever might watch the sermon or listen to the video, your Aunt Phyllis who lives over in Colorado. I'm talking about us, this Campbell Road family. I think there are seven observations we can pull right out of these letters that I believe would be helpful and fruitful for us. Here's number one, that every church is different. No two churches were the same. No two local churches were the same. Even though they were all located in the same place, the same continent, they were there in Asia, they were very different. And so in one sense, you have a church like Smyrna who it says in in Revelation chapter 2, it says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, a church that was poor. And yet you look over in in Revelation chapter 3 with the church of Laodicea, and it says, because you say, I am rich. You have some who were poor and some who were rich. You had some who it seemed had many members who were doing right and good things like the church in Philadelphia. But in Sardis in Revelation 3, it says in verse 4, you have a few people who have not soiled their garments. Some who were strong, many who were strong, some with only a few who seemed to be strong. There were some who had great open doors and opportunities laid before them. In chapter 3 and in verse 8, he says, I put before you an open door which no one can shut. And yet there's other churches in which it seems like the only door they have is just remain faithful, stay the course. Smyrna was not saying, I want you to go and go walk through the open door. Their message was, stand firm, it's about to get rough. Now, They were different. They were different not just 
in their geographical locations where they were in Asia. They weren't just different in their demographics, in terms of their, their wealth, in terms of their, their size of their congregations. They were different in their blessings and in their challenges. Ephesus is a church, as it says in Revelation chapter 2, the very first church, where it says in verse 2, I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. So there were some churches who were solid on the truth. They knew the truth. They stood for the truth. They taught the truth. And then other churches, like Pergamum and Thyatira, who were weak, and their stance for the truth. There are some churches who seem to be active, in good works and in good deeds. Thyatira said that they had held fast to the deeds in which the Lord's had done. It says in 19 of Revelation 2, your love and faith and servants and perseverance and that your deeds of later greater are greater than at first. And then there are some like in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1 that were dead. No two churches were the same. And that's the same for us today. No two local churches are the same. Even here in Dallas, even here in the greater whatever we are, Garland, Northeast Dallas area, no two local churches are the same. Our challenges, our opportunities, what makes us unique, we're simply not the same. And what that means for us is that we're not judged by other churches. Our standard is not other churches. Because not once did Jesus say, you know, church at Laodicea, I wish you would be just more like Ephesus. I, I wish you and Smyrna would be a lot more like Sardis. Or Sardis needed to be more like Smyrna. I wish you would be more like this church. Our standard is not another church. Our standard is Christ himself. That our mirror is not other congregations. I want to be like this church. I want to act like this church. Our mirror is the word of God and our standard is Christ himself. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is said into Christ. That is our goal, that every one of us as individuals be more like Jesus. And if we do that as individuals, we as a collective are going to be more like Christ. So no two churches are the same. Second observation is that every church faces challenges. There was not a church that was immune from the challenges that existed in the first century. Some of them were outside challenges. Chapter 2 and verse 10 in the church of Smyrna says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Outside persecution, the threat of those who wanted to do harm against the people of God. For some, outwardly, it was the influence of the world in chapter 2. And, and in verse 13 with Pergamum, it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Can you imagine that? I know where you live in Garland and your church, and Satan's throne is right there in Garland. We'd say, it's time to pack up and move. We're not doing that. But it happens. Churches who maybe are not persecuted from outside, but they're influenced. Because in Laodicea, a city that was known for its wealth, did you hear me? A city that was known for its wealth and its prominence and its power. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus heard their hearts when it says in verse 17, Because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. What happened? They were influenced by the world around them. And that can happen today too. For some of them, it wasn't outside persecution. For some of them, it was dangers inside. And so in Ephesus, in chapter 2 and verse 4, it was a heart that was hardened and had lost its love. 
for Pergamum was a church in verse 14 that had false teaching sprinkled throughout it and they did nothing about it. And chapter two in verse, and verse 20, they had a woman in their midst who was encouraging people to do absolutely wicked and immoral things and they did nothing about it. And chapter three in verse one, the church died and they did nothing about it. And chapter three with Laodicea and verse 16, they were lukewarm, they lost their fire. They checked off the box, we're here Sunday morning, but that's the extent of my walk with God. For some it was outside dangers, and for some it was inside. Hear that again. For some it was outside, the world influencing the church, or persecuting the church, and then for some it was, it was the members. I mean, isn't that what Paul said? That when we came into Macedonia, we, we had to rest, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Look, conflicts from the outside Fears from within. Dangers on every turn. Brethren, when the church is doing well, when we're growing, and the members are maturing, and the gospel is spreading, be on the alert, because Satan is coming. And maybe outside. Outside sounds like this. You can't preach on that. You can't teach on that. You're intolerant. You're unloving. You're not like Jesus if you take a stand for X, Y, or Z. And if you do, we're going to take you off Facebook. If you do, we're going to slap you with sanctions. We're right there. Or maybe more for us, it's not the world saying, hey, shut down the door. Stop what you're doing. It's the world who says you can have Jesus, but, but you can live your life and focus all entirely on work and on wealth and on leisure and leave Jesus on the pew for when you get back on Wednesday. So influenced by the world around us that we forget why we're here. But maybe it's the other one. Maybe Satan says, leave them alone. Don't persecute them and don't entice them. Leave them alone because look at what they're doing inside themselves. Why persecute a church like Ephesus who's tearing themselves apart from the inside? You left your first love. Why persecute a church like Laodicea? They don't even care that they're there. They're lukewarm. They check the box. They think they're doing great, and they're, they're dying from the inside. They're just a step away from being Sardis. They're still meeting for some reason. The lights are on, but they're dead. There's nothing to them, and that can happen to us as well. Listen, brethren, if we're going to do well, if we're succeeding in our walk with the Lord, be on the alert because Satan will be near. Every church, every single church will have its challenges I think a third observation is that every church changes, and that really is the story of the seven churches of Asia, is that no church remains the same. I mean, no church begins dead. We want to meet, and we want to serve the Lord, but not really. Can you imagine the sign? The lukewarm Church of Christ. <laughs> I get a lot of members. Yeah, come as you are, stay as you are. No one, no one does that. No one starts out saying, we want to leave our first love. We love the truth. We hate you. Come in. And just said, no, no one does that. Because none of these churches did that. You know why we know that? Because we have an entire book called Ephesians in which Paul wrote to the brethren before Revelation chapter 2. In fact, in that letter, he talked them to, to love God, to be imitators of God and to walk in love as he is love. Isn't it fascinating that in Ephesians 5, he says, I want you to look at God and imitate God who is love and walk in love. And what is their issue in Revelation 2 and verse 4? That they left their first love. And it doesn't matter if you think Ephesians and Revelation is one decade away or several decades. The reality is in a short amount of time, they changed. They changed. Brethren, churches change. 
this local church will change. It has, and it will. It can be good. It can be better changes, positive changes. And so Paul wrote to the brethren in Thessalonica saying that you are doing well, right? Indeed, you do so towards all the brethren, showing love, who are all in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. In other words, I don't want you staying put here. You've done good and you're doing good here. Just don't land here. Don't set down your roots. I want you to keep going forward. I want you to keep growing. I want you to excel and add more to what it is you're doing. And that can be us. Right? And the next decade, we look back and say, look at all that we learned. Look at how we grew. Look at how the work expanded. Look at how we improved over those years. But the opposite is true. Because Paul began his letter to the churches in Galatia and said, I'm, I'm astonished. I'm amazed that you so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And in a short amount of time... love and the fervor and the fervency and the care for one another it just dies and in 2019 there were churches that were thriving that were healthy and then in 2021 they no longer exist churches change the reality is the church will change, and this church will change as you and I change. And so if we want the church to change in a positive direction, then you and I evermore must apply 1 Timothy 4.16, that we're looking at ourselves and making sure we're growing in the right ways. We're increasing. We're pressing on. We're growing. Observation number four is that every church has the same source of truth. Did you ever wonder, when you go to Revelation chapter 2, and you look at Ephesus, it says in verse 6, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So it makes it clear, here's a church who's standing against the truth, and one particular truth they were able to stand against was the teaching of the Nicolaitans, or as one high schooler said in Chattanooga, the teachings of the Nicolodians. Really close, not, not quite. But then you come over to Pergamum, and it says down in verse 15 that you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Question for you, how is it that the Ephesians could stand against the Nicolaitans and all their teaching, but Pergamum could not? Like, what did Ephesus have? Did they have the special handbook? Did they have Homer Haley's notes on Nicolaitans and know how to pretend against it? Did they have a special creed book or doctrine or guide? Did Paul write them a special letter behind the scenes and says, when the Nicolaitans—I can't even say it now—when the Nicolaitans—that's awful. Don't tell that joke when you're trying to teach. When the Nicolaitans appear and you hear this teaching, this is—did they have a special letter? I mean, we know the answer. Every single church, all seven, had the same source of truth. Otherwise, why could Jesus come to churches like Pergamum and Thyatira and talk about the false teaching? If they didn't have the same source of truth, if they didn't have the word of God, how could they defend, how could they know the difference between what is true and what was false? Every single church had access to the same source of truth, the word of God. What they did was it was different. In Revelation 2 and verse 4, Ephesus wielded it like a weapon. The church of Pergamum and the church of Thyatira buried it under their toleration of men. We love our brethren more than we love the word of God. 
In chapter 3 and in verse 3 of Sardis, they had forgotten. It says, remember what you have received and heard. They forgot what it was that they had taught. They neglected the word of God. But only in Philadelphia, it says in verse 10, you kept the word of my perseverance. They all had the same word of God. They just did different things with it. They received it differently. Can I share with you a challenge? I'd like to encourage us to maybe think a little more about this. There's something that is said a lot that I think we need to stop saying. You know, the, the churches of Christ teach this. The churches of Christ believe this. That's such a church of Christ thing. Such a church of Christ way of thinking. And what's said about that is that there is a set standard of belief that is held by a number of churches that have the same name on the sign and that anyone who has that same name on the sign holds to that same teaching because we all must believe the same things. Yada, yada, yada. Do you know what we believe here? Do you know what we teach? Do you know why? I cannot tell you what any other church teaches, no matter who it is, of any building, of any place, of any name, on any sign. The only church I can tell you with 100% certainty about what it is that is taught is this one right here. And what we, treat, what we teach is truth. We don't seek to please men, brethren. We, we don't seek men's approval, college's approval, lecture's approval. The name on the sign is unfortunate because for some it's become nothing more than a black eye or a stigma. And yet the reality is the issue is not the sign. The issue is our hearts. Because that sign is meant to do this. It's meant to tell the world, the people in here have given themselves first to Jesus. We are of Christ. And it's meant to remind us we are not part of a denomination. We don't answer to preachers. We don't answer to churches. We don't answer to colleges. We answer to King Jesus and King Jesus alone. I don't know what other churches of Christ teach, but I know what this church teaches. And we are not of the churches of Christ. We are of Christ, period. Can, can we get there? I understand that there are traditions that have been taught for a long time because we have had teachers who have come from other places. But brethren, our loyalty is to the truth. And I mean this today, and I know our shepherds mean the same thing. If there is something that we're not doing today that we need to start doing, please today with no fear, show us. Show us in the word of God and we'll do it. Or if there's something that we are doing that we don't have correct, that we're not seeing it correctly, and you can show us through the word of God that we're wrong, please show us. Because our loyalty is not to a way or to a tradition or to a name on a sign. Our loyalty is to the Lord and to his word. Because his church is the pillar and foundation of truth. We don't establish truth. We stand upon the truth. We teach that truth. We uphold that truth. We don't teach church of Christ doctrine here. We teach the word of God here. That was the standard. They all had the same source of truth. Number five, every church has expectations. Some of the expectations that the Lord had for these churches were attitudinal. 
the way that they saw themselves or saw others. Can you walk that through with me? We're back in Revelation 2. Can you notice some of the expectations? Chapter 2 and verse 4 is about the way we see others and the way we see truth. I have this against you that you've left your first love. The way that I respond to my brethren, the way that I teach the truth. It's one thing to teach the truth with a jackhammer. It's another thing to teach the truth in love with compassion and grace. And so the way that I see you and see one another and see the Lord, that attitude matters to Jesus and it ought to matter to us. At chapter 2 and verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. There's an expectation for our attitude towards our suffering. Now hear that again. Sometimes the very thing that causes us to walk away from it all, to walk away from Jesus, are the hard stuff, the storms. And yet Jesus says, when things get rough, I don't want you to run and I don't want you to crumble. I want you to lean back on me and be faithful. Do you remember that song we sing? I think Aaron led it for us not too long ago in one of the singings. And if I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. And every response, I'm turning to King Jesus, but I'm ever faithful to him. And so my attitude towards suffering is to please Jesus. With Pergamum and Thyatira, the same thing is echoed. But Thyatira says it this way. It says in verse 24, to, to the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I, I place no other burden on you, but nevertheless what you have, hold fast until I come. It's an attitude towards evil and an attitude towards sin and an attitude towards false doctrine. We get so casual, so callous towards evil and darkness today to where we just laugh it off. We get so indifferent towards false teachings where we say, you know, all roads really lead home. Who, who can say who's wrong? Who, who are we to say who's wrong? I mean, maybe they're right. Let's just all do our best and let's all love Jesus. That's not what Jesus said. You hold to the teaching. You hold, full, hold, hold firm to the truth. There's an attitude we ought to have towards false teaching and an attitude we ought to have towards sin. In chapter 3 and verse 1, when he says that I know your deeds and you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. In verse 2, so wake up and strengthen the, the things that remain. Or in chapter 3 and verse 16, that you were lukewarm. You're not hot, you're not cold. I, I vomit you out of my mouth. I advise from you, he says, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich in white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline therefore be zealous and repent. The Lord says I, I care about your attitudes about me and about your soul and about this church. Which means it's not enough just to be here and to sit in the pew and I got my psalm book and I got my Lord's Supper packet. I want you to want to be here. I, I want you, I want you to want me. I want you to love me more than anything else. I want you to have a passion for me that is a burning fire. When I get home from work, we have this dog. He's a bear. He's a 70-pound giant schnauzer who, for some reason, likes me. But he doesn't like my clothes. That is, he doesn't like dress clothes. If I wear shorts, no, no shoes, especially no socks, T-shirts, he loves me. But if I come home and I've got dress clothes on, he is on me as if I'm smothered in cheese and in meat. And he 
enveloped. There's not a greater sense of fear when this dark shadow, 70 pounds, pounces you and wants every bit of you. And I cannot do anything but get him off of me long enough to get into the bedroom and shut the door and change my clothes and then it's all neutral and it's all good. That's what I think about. I want you to want me like that. I want you to want me so much that you can't do anything but think of me, but pursue me, but have me in your life. I don't want to have to beg you to serve me. I don't want to have to plead with you to open up my words to listen to me. I don't want to have to get on my knees in order for you to come on your knees to me and worship. It's an expectation that just okay isn't just okay with God. Isn't just okay with Jesus. In fact, there's a thread that's run with the phrase of deeds in Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 26, he says, He who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give all authority over the nations. Keep my deeds. In chapter 3, it says in verse 2 that I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. You've not kept up your end of the deal. You've not finished what it is that you've started. You've left things undone. But in chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, I know your deeds. And because he knows his deeds, he says, I have put an open door which no one can shut. I know your deeds, and so I'm going to give you more deeds even yet to do, even greater still. Here's the point. There's an expectation Jesus has for every one of his churches, and not one of the churches does he say, you got it good, cruise from here to home. You got this, you got it, just cruise. You're really good. Just take it easy, sit back, leisure on your way, and meander your way home. Every single one of these churches, he had an expectation. He knew them, and he knew what they were capable of, and so he came to them and said, I, whatever it is that you are facing, whatever it is that you are enduring, there's, there's more for you. And I, I imagine, brethren, for you and I, if we looked at a passage like what Jesus said in the parable of Luke 12, and verse 48, I understand there's a context. But within the parable, he says, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. It's a principle of great expectations. When you've been given much, much is demanded in response. And we've been given much. We've been given a lot. And he expects all the more. He expects all the more. He expects it of us, collective, but if he expects it of us, collective, that doesn't fall on the backs of the shepherds. That falls on you and I. That's our expectation that we have to rise to. Observation number six is that every church has potential. Every single church. Six of the churches had good things said about them, great things that they were doing that they needed to continue in. But to all the churches, appreciate this, every letter was but a glimpse of the mercy of Jesus. Because if he wanted to, he could just say, I'm taking your lampstand out, I'm done with you, and you're gone. I mean, he could have, right? I mean, what church was dead? You can't get much worse than dead. And yet... He gave him a letter, which is a way of saying this. I know you're not where you need to be. In fact, you may be far from that, but I realize that you can change. There's potential for you. There's good that you can meet. And so I'm going to give you time. I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to give you the opportunity to rise to this potential. Can I share with you something? Something I think is precious. So from the church of Sardis in Revelation 3 and the church at Laodicea, they had the same struggle. They didn't see themselves as they really were. They overlooked their glaring faults. They thought they were great and they thought everything was fine. And Jesus says, you have this name that you're alive and yet you're dead. Or you think that you're rich and powerful and yet you're broke and you're desperate. They overlooked the bad, only focusing on the good. Can I tell you where I think we are though? I think our issue is the fact that we see the bad. 
That's like 2022's mantra is just always talk about things that are bad. You get on Facebook, let's just talk about bad and how everyone has been hurt and everyone does things that are wrong. We get bad. You know what our struggle is? We have a hard time seeing the good. We, we have a hard time pinpointing and speaking about things that are actually really good and positive. Can you imagine that in the marriage? You talk to a person about their marriage, and the only time he talks about his wife, he's always dogging on her. She's terrible. I mean, she's the worst. I mean, she, she's lazy, and she never gets the food out on time, and it's always cold, and I never like how it tastes, and she's, she's I mean, why in the world are you married? I want to hit that person. Why, why, would you, why would you talk about your mate in such a way? And yet, you imagine there's some people here, the only time they talk about this local church. Brethren, let's pull this in. The only time we talk about this local church, it's just a lot of bad. I just don't like this. I don't like that. Don't like this person. Don't like that decision. You know something precious? So in our Devo, with the high schoolers, one of our kids said, I, I know, I know, I know that the church belongs to Jesus. I've got that. But I think it's also important for us to be able to say that I love my church. That was one of our 17-year-olds. I love that. Can you say that? I love, and it's not just I love that church, or I love the Campbell Roach. I love my church. I chose to be a member here. I'm, I'm a part of this. We are a family. I, I love my church. Can I give you that? Tomorrow morning you're starting with Ricky's application. Can I give you one for the drive home? No criticism at all. I don't care how much I looked at you. No criticism. But instead, ask yourselves the question, what do you love about our church? What do you love about it? Like, what would make that list? I mean, honestly, if I, if I were to sit down with each one of you right now and ask, what, what do you love about our church? It's not, it's not this church. What do you love about our church? What about this church thrills you? What about this church is so amazing that, that it just keeps you here and you're so glad to be here and among the people? I would spend the rest of the day, I had the list, and I said, I'm going to do seven things, and seven became 70 really fast. I love our shepherds, the best shepherds I've ever met, and I love their wives, who are just as incredible as they are. They can't do it without them, and they're amazing. I love our deacons. They are the most hardworking men I've ever seen, and their wives are incredible supporting them in that work. I love our older members here. Leon and Nancy have been members here for 59 years, and I love that we have members like them who are entrenched in wisdom, but it's a wisdom that's packaged with kindness and mercy. If you spend time with them, they're the most gracious older people we have who are so wise and helpful. And I love our young families. I love our young families and how passionate they are, and I love our screaming babies and our kids, and I love our young people, how they love being together. They love being together. I can't say that enough. I love our young people, every one of them, and their love for the Lord. I love, I love the way we worship, the way we worship at our church. I love that the gospel is going out. We have a lot of studies going on, and God has given us increase. That's to God's glory. Thank you, Lord. I love how we're growing because people, people love the way that we love one another, because even though we have bumps, and warts and ticks. 
deep down, we really do love each other here. And I love that. I love that. So maybe let's ease off a bit. Let's, let's put the criticism away for a while. Jesus, Jesus did that, and Jesus pointed out the bad, and I think we're, we've got it with the bad. We know what we need to work on, and we know our flaws. Brethren, I think it's time for us to share some good news and to remind each other why we love being a family here at Campbell Road. We have so much potential. In fact, you know one of the most amazing things about the seven churches to me is that when Jesus talked to every one of the churches, he ended every letter by saying, I see you in heaven. I see you there. You listen to me and you do what I'm asking you and you overcome and I'm looking at you and I'm seeing you there. That's potential, brethren, and we have that too. I firmly believe our greatest days of this church, which nearly has been on this earth for 60 years, this local, this family, has its best days yet to come. Our last observation is simply this, that every church will affect its members. Every church, we talk about how the church is the people and we are the church, and so every church will reflect its members. And so a lukewarm church came because the members were lukewarm. A dead church became because its members were dead, spiritually. And so a church that left its first love came from members who along the way had left their first love and justified that. A church that had tolerated wicked members, false teachers, came because the members had grown to tolerate false teaching and false teachers. And yet a church that was told to endure because you're going to suffer is a church that was full of Christians who were each going to endure because each one of those members in some way or another was going to suffer. It's just a great reminder that this, brethren, we will make this church what it is and will be. If it's going to be a strong church, then you and I are going to be strong. If it's a loving church, you and I are going to be loving. If it's a patient church, a gracious church, a merciful church, then we're going to be gracious and patient and merciful people. If it's going to be a church that's active outside these four walls, we're not going to sit and complain about it in the foyer. I'm going to go outside these four walls and I'm, and I'm going to be active because we are we are this church. One of my favorite stories is from a VBS when at the end of the day, one of the leaders had all these kids together and they were doing all these exercises. And one of them was, let's build the church. Remember how you do the church and the steeple and, and all the things with the people? Well, they had a visitor that day, a little boy, and he was sitting right in the front row next to some of their other members, sitting next to a little girl. The thing is, this little boy was born without one hand. All he had was a nub. The exercise was you reach over with the neighbor and together you, you would build the church. But he, he didn't have that nub. And so the little girl next to him took his arm and brought it over. And she says, here, here you and I, let's together, let's, let's build this church. Let's build this church, you and me. Can we do that? Let's build it together. Because whatever we become, whatever we do, whatever we are able to give back to the Lord who bought us is what we make it to be. My mom and dad had a rule growing up. Some of you have it too because you've come to my house and I love it when you do because it's wonderful to receive it. When you go somewhere, you leave it better than how you found it. 
And so you might go, and maybe the house was a little messy when you went there. Maybe that toy room was already kind of disheveled when you went there, but when you left, you put all the toys back in its places. I mean, some of you go, when you start mopping the floors and sweeping, you're coming over every week I have. Yeah, leave it better than how you found it. <laughs> you know, the reality is some of you have not been here all your life. Some of you are transplants. Some of you, like me, come from, from north, from Yankees. Some of you from other places. And the reality is many of us are not going to be here forever. Not just on earth, realizing we're, we're having home, but, but not every one of us are going to be here with this local church. So as long as I'm here, as long as the Lord allows me to be here with this family that I have joined, I'm going to leave it better than how I found it. I'm going to do my part, however big or small, I'm going to do my part to leave this local church better than how I found it. To the glory and the praise of the Christ who bought us. You've listened so well this morning. Thank you so much for letting me share these observations with you. And I hope they'll be helpful for us. If you're here this morning and you've not started your walk with Christ, we hope today would be a great day for you to give that a strong consideration. And if you've heard some things today that have got you curious about your life and your soul and you'd like to learn some more about what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus, we ask you to stick around and let us talk with you about that a little more. If you are here and you have heard the truth, the gospel truth, and you know that that if you but believe in Jesus and turn from your sins, you leave them behind, you confess Jesus as your Lord and put him on in baptism, you today could be adopted into his family. This is a great time, a great time to do so. And we'd love to help you if you're ready to start that journey. We have a song prepared just for that reason. It could be, though, good brethren, that while we're here, right here today, the truth is fresh in our mind. Our brethren are here to encourage us as we sing. There may be some things in our life we need to get right with the Lord. If we can help you, we'd love to. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you. But if even here, right here in the pew, you need to make some things right with the Lord, to say a prayer and to leave here right with your God, we encourage you to do so. Whatever it is we can do to help you, let's just do it right now. Let's stand. Let's sing.